Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Ulrika Schwartz. And if you're not familiar with her, she is a Grammy-nominated engineer who primarily works with a lot of orchestral and jazz recordings. And she's also the wife of one of our previous guests on the podcast, Jim Anderson, who appeared on episode 136. And in this episode today, we get into Ulrika's process for recording orchestras and what really goes into it. And when it comes to recording this kind of stuff, she has a bit of a different approach than we typically think about when it comes to recording rock bands. With rock bands, you typically focus on close miking, and then you add the ambience after the fact, whereas Ulrika has more of an ambience-first approach to recording. And because of that, it impacts the way she positions her microphones at the beginning of a session, and then a lot of the other decisions that she makes about close miking and all sorts of stuff like that after the fact. So I think it's a really interesting approach to recording, and if you're looking to create recordings that sound very ambient, you might want to try approaching things the way that she does. We also get into some interesting conversation around the idea that you shouldn't have to use EQ or compression in your mixes. And really, this all comes down to just getting things right at the source. But in this episode, we dive a little bit deeper into that philosophy and what it takes to really create recordings that don't need to be fixed up in post. And I think that when you hear the amount of detail that she pays attention to when it comes to creating these great recordings... I think it all makes sense why she's so successful, why she's been nominated for Grammys. And we get into some really small details that a lot of people overlook in their recording process that can actually have a really big impact in terms of the overall clarity and quality of your recordings. So there's a lot of great stuff to learn here, regardless of if you're working with orchestral stuff or not. There is definitely a lot of great stuff here to apply to your mixes that will help you get cleaner, better sounding recordings. So with that said, let's just jump right into the interview. Ulrika Schwartz, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm doing very well. It's nice. It's a nice uh, spring day in New York. So that that lifts the mood quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. We were talking before. It's just like summer is coming and it's the best thing ever when you live in a place that has like snow and winter season and all that. So it's definitely refreshing to have that for sure. I, I can't wait to go outside and like barbecue afterwards or something. <laughs> for people who might not be familiar with who you are, what you do and your background, uh, can you give us that story and how you got into everything you're doing and all the awesome stuff you're working on these days? Sure. So I, I'm actually a trained uh, pianist. I'm a trained musician. I studied uh, classical music production at the University of the Arts, Berlin, in Germany. And then I worked for uh, 15 years uh, at um, the uh, German National Broadcasting um, Network at uh, Bavarian Radio, predominantly with their um, symphony orchestra and their choir. Then I moved to New York, and now I'm mostly working in immersive audio um, immersive audio and super high definition audio, usually on acoustic projects, um, lately a little bit less classical, more jazz and more Latin, but always kind of in a, in an acoustic music world. That's, That's awesome. what, what I've been doing. Yeah. And how did you get into all that stuff? Like, obviously you said you, you played piano first, but was that kind of like, you just wanted to record yourself or like, what was that evolution like as far as learning the stuff? Well, it, it actually started very, very early because I think at the age of 
three. No, I could actually, I could read and write music before I could read and write uh, language. So, so that's, that started, I think when I was about three, when I was four, I think they found out that I have perfect pitch. And, and since then, um, I also wanted to start playing the piano. And, and at some point, my cognitive abilities, I think, superseded the, the manual. And my, uh, my piano teacher from Hungary kind of found out that my, that my hearing was very good. And she just had me stand in the corner of, of the room and she would play whatever. And I could just tell her what she played. And so that was kind of, that was kind of what we did sometimes. And then, and then I went back to the piano and actually kind of managed that pretty well. But when I was a teenager, I kind of thought, yeah, I don't really want to be a pianist because as a pianist, I, I knew I could be that good. But my hearing, I kind of had the feeling I could be working with whomever I wanted to work and whomever I actually ended up working with. And I had to find out, like, how does the music get on the vinyl? How does the music actually get on the CD that came up when I was when I was kind of a teenager? So, um, and I found out about those jobs, and and I thought, oh, uh, this classical music producer—that sounds really good. And here, here's another funny bit: I had an internship at this national broadcasting network when I was, I think, about. 15 or 16 or something and the second day they brought me into the biggest biggest hall they have and the studio just overlooks the whole hall like this like from the 17th century it's just amazing and i thought you know what i want to sit there this 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 looks cool not knowing that this job is so rare and that i had i mean i had no idea what i was talking about but i thought that shop that that job with you know turning the pages and telling people what to do i thought sounds great so I ended up actually studying it. And while I was studying it, I thought, nobody listens to the guy who actually makes those calls. So the guy on the mixing board, that's much cooler. So actually, I changed into, into engineering because I thought, this is where you create the sound. This is actually, this is cool. So I, I, I went in that and I went to America to work um, for Jim Anderson, who later became my husband. Uh, and um, when, I, when I was back and, and finished my studies, I was actually employed at this particular company, ended up sitting in that hall at that chair. And I thought, things can work out sometimes. But <laughs> at that point, I had found out how difficult it actually is to sit in exactly that chair. Because, and here's another topic that is very, I mean, that has to come up. Germany is very conservative. There are not many women in this job. And I was the first woman actually sitting in this chair. So, I mean, I that, that. that it would just, it hit all the marks and um, it, it was a lot of fun. It I was a great fun. Yeah. I love hearing stories of people who like just manifest their, their future yeah. and, you know, like, yeah, I want to, I want to sit in that chair. And, and then, yeah, years later you are there and getting paid for it and yeah. all that stuff, right? That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 I think my first uh, the first orchestra I did there, or the first the first immersive thing I did there, um, Daniel Harding, not bad. The second or the first big immersive recording was with Simon Rattle, a big oratory, and I thought, you know what, things that it's cool. I mean, you sit there and you <laughs> think, I'm listening to Simon Rattle practicing with this orchestra for ten days, and I'm getting paid for it. It. it it really, there was something very special about that job, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So then how did you, because I feel like getting into the world of orchestral recording is certainly not a common thing. 
you know, and it, it's not like, especially these days, like, you know, home stu- like the big studio market is kind of going away and people are going more and more to their home studios. But to actually then have the ability to work with like an orchestra or work in these massive halls, I feel like that's a very rare opportunity. So as far as getting into to that scene and like actually learning the ins and outs of recording those kind of things, how did you go about doing that? Well, again, this this um, uh, university I, I I was at the, um, the there are two courses in Germany called uh, Tonmeister, which is okay. the person who's the music producer, and to get into those universities, you have to do a very very rigorous uh, selection uh, s- selection process. So in my case, those were um, I think 170 applied, and they took three for a semester. So my oh, wow. semester was three people, and so they they you get a very very exclusive education, but of course nobody tells you or you don't learn how to do a recording of an orchestra. I mean you can't learn that in stu- at the university. Although we did have the university orchestra, and I kind of had the chance to work a little bit with with orchestras, but that is something you actually learn on the job. I mean, I had all the training in knowing who everything is, what everything is. I had score readings, so I was actually one of the engineers who can read a score, sometimes better than the producer because I had the same <laughs> training. And um, But you really learn it um, in that job. And in Germany, um, this, there's this national broadcast network called ARD. And every state basically has their own ARD Subnetwork, and um, they used to have all of them used to have at least one orchestra, a choir, maybe a big band or something. And Bavarian Radio happens to have two orchestras and a world famous choir. So basically, the first couple of years they put you on the small orchestra to learn. So it's kind of like yeah, it's stereo, it's all good, and then they move you on to the. Um, to the symphony orchestra, which is this world-class orchestra that travels all over the world and, and has every soloist you've ever dreamed of. But again, to get one of those jobs is not is not easy because there are... I mean, I am from Munich, Bavaria, and I interned at this Bavarian radio. So I was kind of thinking these jobs exist, even if it's maybe just 10 or 12 or 15 in all over Germany. And I had been actually um, a member of the Audio Engineering Society very early on in my studies. And uh, that way, I was a student delegate person, and I was sent to the AES in Munich to help build the team of volunteers and things like that. And the person who was the chairman of that uh, of that convention actually kind of noticed me and said, who, who is this person? And so I came in contact with him. And later, when I was at a different position in the network, he he asked or he told me that I should actually apply for the job as the as as one of the orchestral or as they call them the senior engineers. So I was kind of a known quantity through the AES, and that's actually another thing that I would um, stress on everybody that the AES, or in in the case of Germany, there's also the VDT, the uh, Verband Deutscher Tonmeister. These professional associations, um, you never you never know what happens. First of all, they have great learning opportunities during their conventions, on on like almost on entry level and on very very professional level. And again, you never know whom you meet. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was it was it was not that he kind of just 
book me off uh, off the street, but he knew I was around, and he always said, "If we, if one of these positions um, get, ever gets free, I'll let you know that you can apply." And then, of course, I had to fight off probably fifty or sixty other people, but at least I. Um, I was a known quantity at that point already. I love that. I, you know, I think it really does stress the the importance of networking. And I love what you said about just like, you know, join the AES or, or you know, there's there's lots of, uh, I know at least where I'm at, at, like the AES always has like these like free events that you can go to and, you know, you can go behind the scenes of like a big studio and they, you know, talk to the people there or, you know, they go to venues and all sorts of, they've, I've had all sorts of great experiences with the AES and a lot of times, you know, there are, there are these free workshops that you can get into and then obviously if you pay you get into to more more of those kind of activities, but it's really just a an opportunity to get in the room with like minded people who you know who knows what position they're in, and and you know if you spark up these friendships and relationships with people, you can you know network and leverage and you know work with uh, collaborate with each other and all that kind of thing. So I think that it does provide a really great yeah. hub of opportunity for people. Um, and yeah, if there's a learning aspect to it, there's a networking side of it. So there's a lot of great value in, in something like that. And, and I've noticed that, um, some people that, I mean, there are frequently people that, that you will meet in, in these workshops, because again, also that scene is, is not that big. And for example, like Morton Lindbergh, uh, who, like we we have our like once a year we are competitors at the Grammys, <laughs> but the rest of the year and and even there uh, we hang out we, you know we we have dinners together and we uh, and we have actually through the Grammys and through the AES we have such a close knit network with him and other people that he works for us we work for him we work together we try to figure out and influence something at that we can at Apple or, or at other, I think at some other labels, I kind of pushed something through for us. And he was a big benefactor of that. And sometimes he just pushes things for his label and tells us about it. And then we kind of can get into his wave and, and just really both benefit from it because we are, I mean, we're both very much in the, or we're all very much in the independent label scene. And sometimes, you know, we actually have to work together uh, against the big ones a little bit because otherwise we'll just drown. And it, it, it is it is a great um, it's a great chance to meet people and a great chance to to learn and to collaborate. I love I that. Say, yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, you don't need to be going to these like obviously you you had success in going to a very uh, niche market school and you know one of three people you said which is impressive but you don't need to necessarily do that to to no. get in the circle with these other people. Um, but that's just a you know when you get opportunities like that that's also just something to jump on and and uh, you know take to learn from obviously. So um, yeah, yeah, I love that. And you brought up an interesting thing of the idea of you kind of have to learn the process of recording orchestras by doing it. And like, you know, I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can study the theory of it all you want and get a sense of microphone positioning and that kind of thing. And yeah, you, I mean, you're probably going to want to know how to do a little bit of that when you're working with an orchestra, but I imagine that there is an immense amount of pressure getting into a situation of like recording an orchestra and learning. Cause you know, you got a lot of people and, you know, you, you can only use up so much of their time because a lot of the time, you know, these orchestras, they're, they're session musicians, they're paid, paid by the hour, there's certain time limits, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's a, you know, you, you have to work 
really efficiently. And uh, yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your your early experiences of setting up microphones and actually working with these orchestras and figuring it out in the in the moment. Yeah. So I mean, there's also a very uh, a psycho, there's a very big psychological aspect to it. I think that's probably in every in every music the same thing. I mean, if you sit if you sit next to somebody who mixes an orchestra, you kind of notice, oh, there's not enough flute, there's not enough this. You kind of know everything. But as soon as you are, the, for the first time, sitting in the chair and the speaker, and it comes at you, you're like, the blood pressure rises and, and you don't <laughs> hear anything, especially not what's wrong and then how what to do about it. So so there is there is a lot of ways. I mean, first, you listen to a lot of, I mean, in, at, at, the, at the university, you listen to a lot of recordings and you try to develop a vocabulary of what you need and what it is that I'm hearing and what it is that I would want and how would I get it. So in, in classical music, it works a little bit different than in, let's say, rock music, where you first establish maybe the drum kit, then the bass, then the rhythm section, and then you go from there. In, in classical music, there's something called a main microphone system and then spot microphones. So the main microphone system consists either of two or three or five microphones in, in stereo. I'm not talking just stereo. And um, so if you have like two microphones with, um, with a uh, latency, basically with a distance, then that's called an AB. Then there is the famous Decca tree or Decca tree with outriggers. It's kind of the basic things. So you hang most of the times in a big concert hall, in a big European concert hall, you hang these microphones from the ceiling and you have to decide basically like in 3D chess, like they're supposed to hang here if the orchestra sits there. So you hang those microphones. And then what you would do if you have a rehearsal, you would first listen to this main microphone pair and kind of assess, do I have the fullness? Is it too far away? Is it too close? Is it this? Is that the other thing? And then you have brought out, hopefully, a couple of spot microphones so that when the producer tells you, but I need more second violins, that you can kind of lift the second violins a little bit with the microphones that you have placed over the second violins. And so you kind of have to cover your bases. The problem with this is, though, usually you don't have, if you have like really mishung them, it's very difficult to change the position. I mean, in, in like my <laughs> favorite hall, we had them actually motorized. So you could do up and down by, by motor fader actually from the board. That was cool. But usually you have to go downstairs. You have to go down. You have to go back. You have to correct your mistake. Everybody sees that something obvious isn't what you wanted. And then we go from there. So basically, if you know the hall and you kind of know this is my point for that size of orchestra and that kind of material, you have to be right about 90% the first, <laughs> the first thing out because then you can only make small small uh, changes and if you're really off then you have you have a problem <laughs> it's, it's it's truly committing at the source at its finest yeah, yeah. it's like you have to like okay and then also <laughs> uh so that's that's your main microphone setup and then you kind of depending on what again what the materials they're playing you might know how oh, you know in the whatever third movement there is this bass clarinet and vibraphone solo so you kind of have to have those ready and then lift them when you need them and then they kind of just create it in that natural space that you have decided on that everything happens in so it's it's, it's that's that's kind of the the idea that you have to 
first commit on an overall sound, and then you have to fill up basically what you need. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's kind of the opposite of like what most people typically do with like a rock band or something like that, where, you know, it's, it's all about getting the close mics first. And then, and then if you, if you got the extra mics, you'll worry about ambience and, or you just like, screw that. I'll just like add reverbs and stuff like that later on in post. But right. it really does sound like you're kind of like, nope, we got to embrace the sound of this venue. We got to get the overall sound. That's the first thing we do. And then we can maybe pepper in some of this close mic stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really the, the Total opposite, and 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 again, you have possibly ninety uh, people and a conductor and a very famous soloist on stage, and there's no, you know, you can't really go down when they are doing it. So there might be a break where you can change it, but your producer will kill you if you completely change the sound because then editing is difficult. So so it's kind of like the the first the first moment the faders go up is is really is is really quite telling. So and then you have to act very fast to see can I possibly correct that with what I have or do I have to go downstairs do I have to send my assistants downstairs I mean usually um, a classical thing has at least one or two assistants because we're talking easily uh, it can go into 60 microphones on a, on, a, hmm. on a really like on a Mahler symphony you can end up with soloists and choir and something you cannot end up with you know 50 to 60 microphones and so there's there's a lot also that has to be done in terms of how is my system like how how are the channels laid out and and so because you can't you can't sit there and look is in the cello is that the why is there a clarinet or something I mean this I mean usually I always send them like written lists you you, you make that days before and then you send them lists and everybody knows where where things go yeah it's almost like you've templated your your board or you like you've templated the session going yeah. into it so you know exactly where to find everything and yeah you've got that clear game plan yeah. And they and it has to appear there because otherwise this uh, the session is this is going to be very difficult to to survive that. So I mean, there's a lot of pre planning into into how this is, and and very often you try if if you are not the producer, if you're the engineer, you try to get in contact with the producer. Like, what kind of sound do they expect? If they know the piece better than you, they will tell you where what to look for. If you know the piece very well. It always, it, I mean, I always had a score at my board as well. Not only, not only the producer, but I usually had a score too, to, to see where were my marks, what did I have to hit, at which point, when does it get really loud, and how do I, I mean, how do I really write the, 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 the volume back so that when the big drum, when the big whatever Grand Casa comes, that, that, it, that it doesn't explode in my face. <laughs> so, so it's it's really um, it's a, it's a lot of it's a lot of preparation, and and you don't have like very crass moves. It's very subtle, but it's a lot of them. And and the more you can actually believe, or you, the more you know about the score, I mean, the more you can you you have the freedom to actually move your faders. Um, if you don't know what's going to come, then you basically just try to keep everybody at bay and. And hope nothing and nothing bad happens. Um, so that that's kind of if you if you have a symphonic uh, if you have a symphonic uh, setup. If you do film music, you will still have this Decca tree, and but you will have a lot more spot microphones because usually film music needs to be a lot closer and a lot more grip because there is FX, there is there is Atmos, there is uh, dialogue, there's all kinds of things. So you have the same type of setup but much closer and much more impactful. So that that's getting to you. And um, usually you want to, if you can, you want to 
um, close off the brass and the and the woodwinds from the strings and especially the percussion, so that if the movie required it, you could turn off brass, you could turn off woodwinds, you could turn off anything you want because maybe with the dialogue you have to, you know, something has to mm. go. So that that's kind of um, similar but different. If you do uh, film scores, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, it, it, it to me it's so fascinating because I. You know, I can imagine these these massive venues. You've got tons of musicians. Like you're probably, I, I would guess that you're not sound checking like most people would be sound checking in the sense of like you know dialing in the gain on every microphone, like very detailed. You know, it's like you probably have to get have to get up and running very very quickly just because you're you're short on time. And then you know, you, well, you you have your setups. You're kind of like, okay, my my main microphone will be at whatever thirty. Yeah. My I start all my um I start all my spots at whatever twenty, and then depending on you'll you'll. Or I mean, percussion, of course, a lot lower, and you will kind of dial that in. But it has to be, it has to be fairly, yeah, very quick. And um, also with classical, I mean, classical music in, let's say, the orchestral sense. If you're in a big hall, you probably don't want to have too many different types of microphones because they kind of are all supposed to give you the same. They're not supposed to color the sound. What, what you want with a classical spot microphone is, yes, you want the clarinet maybe a little bit closer or a little bit more on point, but you don't want the clarinet to have whatever sound and then the timpani to have whatever sound. So it's kind of, we. I mean, I always try to have not more than three or four different types of microphones, and usually they were all small membrane. So they, they would have the DPA or maybe the, ma the main microphone, of course, if you had them, uh, the M50s or the... We had also great success with actually Browner VM1. A Decca tree of Browner VM1 is fantastic if, if you can have it. But, but again, you can't hang them. You can only use that in a studio where you have the big crane. If you have audience, and, and then you can only fly those really, the ones that are 100 gram at maximum, because if one falls, especially on an audience member or an instrument, they, sh they shouldn't kill them, you know, that would be... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you kind of want to avoid that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, or if it, you know, if it were to swing into a Stradivari, eh, not, not so, not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, there, there are those things where you, you have to be kind of general, but also very specific. Because I had once, uh, like the, the, the atmosphere of a concert hall empty and the atmosphere of a concert hall, the sound of a concert hall full is very different. Mm -hmm. Like the, the reverb time changes. So it, with that in mind, you might have to go closer with your microphones in an empty hall rehearsal and then bring it up and, and really bring in the, the reverb in the concert situation. Also, an orchestra will play louder in the concert situation. So you kind of have to adjust for that. And even if it's a dress rehearsal, you're like, yeah, yeah, but there's extra 5 dB. Don't all musicians do that? Even like a rock band, it's like, you know, you can ask the drummer to play like, you know, just check your drums yeah, yeah. and then they're going to play like twice as loud when it actually comes to hitting record. Right. right. <laughs> and, 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 and then there was one thing where I thought I probably drove my producer crazy, but he found out that I was actually right. Um, so I had, I had an evening with um, Anna-Sophie Mutter, which I, I don't know, if you know who she is, but she's a very, very famous um, uh, violinist. And uh, so I was walking out on stage before the rehearsal began, and all of a sudden, I was, oh, she was standing right next to me, and she was maybe not, I, I'm not very tall, so I'm 165 or 5'5". Five five. 
and she was significantly shorter than I was. And I had always pictured her as, as kind of tall because, you know, when she's there in dress and the violin, I was like, oh, but she was on flat shoes. And um, so I kind of brought my microphone for her solo and thought it that worked well and it sounded good in the rehearsal. And then I went to the producer and said, so what is she going to wear tonight? And he, and he really got mad at me. He's like, what are you asking? I said, is she going to wear five inch heels? Yep. Is she going to, well, what is she going to wear? Because then she'll be that much closer. We have the audience. I really need to know. <laughs> and he was too embarrassed actually to go and ask her. So I went down myself and said, so um, what are we, what are we wearing tonight? And she said, Dior. I said, yeah, said, okay. Yes. Okay. You're wearing Dior. And how, how high the heels? And she, first she looked at me and was like, oh, nobody ever asked me that. That's a very good question. And I said, yeah. So uh, I knew the height. I adjusted the microphone and um, it, it actually turned out to be very, very nice. But it's, um, yeah, it, 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 15 centimeters is like five inches. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's really interesting. And it, it's, it goes to show the detail that you put into your work and makes yeah. it make sense why your recording sound phenomenal because you're, you're paying attention to those little details. And um, yeah, yeah I, I, I love that. That's a great example of just like understanding the real world application versus like the sound check and uh, how that how that can differ. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you kind of mentioned um, you mentioned how typically you start with these giant room mics and, and you're capturing the overall sound. But it also sounded like you kind of set those up and you you, you pray that it works. But I'm curious, like, obviously, I think there's more to that. And, and with your experience, you've probably learned some go to starting points as far as, you know, how, what kind of distances yes. to keep from people. Yes. Um, do you have any advice for for setting up those initial mics to, to capture a good, clean sound and, you know, what considerations people should have there? Yeah, well, so there's uh, there's certain rules. Um, so you want your main microphones at the point where the direct sound and the uh, diffuse sound meet. And so what you want to know, if you don't know the hall, is where's the mid-reverb time? So where's your, so because that kind of tells you a little bit how far you probably have to be away from your direct sound to kind of be at at basically that point. So you really want to be at right at where direct sound and, and diffuse sound meet for the main, main microphone. And is that just a matter of like walking the room to, to find that? Um, well, I mean, you can clap your hands. That'll give you, that'll give you a pretty good answer because uh, then you can do one, two, two and a half, whatever. Or you can actually, in, in uh, Stavanger, we got, um, we got the whole plans and we got the architectural plans and they told us which reverb time, where and whatever. So Amazing. you can actually do, you can ask for that. If you don't have if you don't have documentation, they actually give you also the volume of the hall. So I mean, you need to kind of know the volume of the hall, the mid reverb time, and and the surfaces that will basically tell you where you might want to go. Then uh, I mean, a, actually, a good place to start usually in a let's say traditional concert hall is kind of two two and a half meters above the head of your conductor. And okay. Started started four meters or something, four twenty or something. Again, and then depending on what what the um what the content is going to be. If it's like a Mozart symphony that never gets really loud and the, if you want to have grip on it, then you probably lower it a little bit. If it's going to be a Mahler symphony, then you might have to back off a little bit because it's it's going to be very, very loud at, at times. So I mean that kind of tells you is it going to So what, what we always know want to know from the orchestra is what's the setup. Meaning is it uh, something called 
121086, which means 12 first, 10 second, eight viola, six celli, and a couple of basses? Or is it a 2018 something? And then you know, okay, this is big. We, we need space. So they need to tell us, and they also need to tell us where they sit. It's like, is it the whatever first? First violins always sit on the left. And then there's something called a German setup. This is where the uh, second violins sit on the right. And then viola, celli. Or is it American where it's like first, second, viola, celli? And that kind of informs you what the sound will be. Because if you, um, I mean, now, now this is getting, see, now I'm nerding out uh, on, <laughs> on a university level. If any, any orchestra piece up to the Second World War basically has been written with the German seating in mind, where the first violins play left, the second violins play right, and they answer to each other. So usually that's how it's written. So it's very easy if they sit that way, then you have them on the left, they answer on the right, no problem. But if they sit next to each other, then it's very difficult to actually get the sound from the second violins on top of the first violins when they answer. So, I mean, then you have to basically do the microphone positioning of your spots for the second violence very different because, you know, I will need them a lot. While when they are on the sitting on the right and the other sit on the left and they kind of play ping pong, very easy. It does itself. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's these considerations are there as well, where um, in the American seating, you basically have all treble on the left and all bass on the right, which can be difficult. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And in the other seating, it's kind of more mixed. It's e- I think it's easier to deal with. So, again, those are things that I would like to know up front. And um, especially when I know the repertoire very well and, and, I'm like, and then I hear that they haven't really decided yet, then let's say, well, if you do Beethoven, I sort of really suggest this German seating because that's what it was written for and it'll be so much easier to record. Yeah. You know, th- those are... That's... That, that's like a e- very easy example of, of why it matters to know to know the content, yeah. But I think that that's a really good thing for people to know. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who really will never actually get to the point where they're recording a full orchestra. But even if you're, like, programming stuff, and there's a lot of people that program their, their orchestral arrangements and that kind of thing for their songs, having this in mind, I think, is helpful because it is going to allow you to plan the stereo field and not end up with a lopsided mix. And, you know, if you're aware of this German style versus the American style, that kind of thing, then you can work with that to make your mix feel a little bit more balanced and at least have a concept of where things should be sitting within the context of your mix. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up. Yeah, so, and and the same thing happens to, you know, the the woodwinds and the brass, depending on where everybody else sits. Usually the higher woodwinds kind of flute is, uh, flute is left, uh, oboe is right, the clarinet left, bassoon right. So, I mean, you kind of also have, you have different ways of spreading them out depending on, on what you want to do. Then again, in, in, um, orchestra, rec- uh, in, in film recording, what you sometimes end up doing is you actually have the brass seating, seated closest to you then the woodwinds and the strings behind them because then they won't be, you know, won't be overpowered by the brass and you can actually separate them better. So it's, it's always the, the purpose is, is very, very important. I mean, in a concert, you will always have strings first, woodwinds, then brass and percussion behind it. Again, in a film situation, it might make sense to do it differently in order to be able to separate them better and to actually lift the, 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 the violence to where they need to go because 
if you have a full set. I mean, usually in, in film music, the brass is much bigger uh, seated than, than in, a, in, in an orchestra. I mean, in, in a film like Nine French Horns, not a problem. Five tubas, not a problem. But in, in a symphony, you will rarely see that. But, yeah. but I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's always depends on, again, the, the application that, that you are trying to, to hit. Um, For sure. That makes a lot of sense. But, but for example, if you do have, you know, if you, you've written something and you thought, well, maybe a string quartet would sound really nice. Then again, you want to make sure that, of course, you have a closer sound than like the orchestral sound. Mm-hmm. That would sound far too far away with all the, you know, with all the other stuff you've written in a band yeah. context. So that's when probably the spot microphones, again, will be a lot louder and there won't be a main microphone. There will be maybe two room microphones if you kind of want to play with something like that. But probably you will will meet them very, very close, Mike, and, and in order to stand up to whatever else is going on. So again, that's, that's, that's very, very different. And another thing that is also very, very telling when you set up your microphones and you have your first, you have your first rehearsal and you have an orchestra, you have a conductor coming up and actually listening to the sound. And if they hear in your mix, what they have conducted, then you know you're on the right on the right track because if they say, "Oh, I told them to play soft, to play piano here," and in your mix it's like all the same, then mm. they'll say, "Well, I, I don't recognize what I did here to what has been happening down there." So that's that's the other thing that you always that you get the um, that you usually get a very good feedback from from the conductor and ideally, I mean, ideally a classical music piece kind of should mix itself. I mean it. Of course, you have to help certain elements because it it is never like it is down downstairs. You, it, I mean, in a recording, you don't have the visual aspect. You you microphones are kind of dumb, so you kind of have to help the reality a little bit. But but I mean, in 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 a very good case, it kind of mixes it uh, itself, and you really just help certain things along. That's kind of the aim that you have. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that you bring up about the, you know, making sure that the conductor is hearing what they've been conducting. <laughs> you know, that it, it's kind of like at the end of the day, like it's it's kind of like the conductor is the client here. And, and you know, we're trying to make them the happy one. Right. And get their vision to come to life. So um, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I like also what you mentioned, too, about kind of the idea of if you're if you're adding strings to maybe more of a typical like rock setup or something like that, then, yeah, maybe you're not going to go with this crazy giant over the top setup of, you know, massive room and all that kind of stuff. I think that that's a really important distinction. Um, and something I was curious about with, with a lot of the stuff you're working on is um, working with reverb times. Because obviously reverb is one of those tools that, you know, a lot of people love it because it can make things sound nicer and sweeter. But it also has this horrible effect of sometimes making things sound really muddy as well because, you know, it's just sound bouncing around all the time and you kind of lose the clarity of the the focal point of, of the mix or whatever elements are in the tracks. Um, and obviously, I, I think it's very different when you're working on like a rock situation versus working in a, an orchestra because people are kind of used to hearing more room tone with, with an orchestra. Um, but as far as finding that balance of like having that reverb in there versus you know, having the clarity of your instruments, I guess this maybe maybe comes back to what you were talking about earlier with that, you know, finding that reverb time and finding that midpoint in, in the room where 
you're getting that uh, that balance. Is that is that kind of just how you approach it so that it's not the reverb isn't creating more mud for you? Well, if if you have if you have like an extremely good sounding hall, I mean, like let's say uh, in in the U.S., Strathmore is really good. I think Montreal is actually very very good. What have I heard that was excellent? Carnegie Hall actually is difficult, although everybody says Carnegie Hall is so great. Carnegie Hall has a <laughs> lot of little things that you have to know about it to not mess up a Carnegie Hall recording. <laughs> uh, but for example, in, in Europe, some really famous halls are Vienna Musikverein, um, Herkulesal, Berlin Philharmonic Hall. Uh, and in Japan, you have the Suntory Hall, which is world famous. And, and there's actually a there's a, a funny story with with us and um, uh, and Suntory Hall. Um, so if you have, let's say, a, a a room with a very famous acoustic signature, you don't want to overpaint this with a reverb, like like a lexicon something, because that you have everywhere. But if you have like this famous hall, you also want to. I mean, you want to hear that famous hall. You don't want to overbear it, but of course, you want to hear. So you need enough of your main microphone to say, "Oh, this is this is actually music fine. This is great." And then sometimes the clarity comes a little bit from the spot microphones, and sometimes, again, depending on material and how things are, sometimes you have to fill. I mean, there are two ways actually of approaching that, and and that. I think doesn't really happen that much in uh, rock music, but in, in classical music, that that's a big topic people fight about. So my my personal I- ideal is I have my um, my main microphone at the same at the right point. I figure out where it has to hang. It it's there. It's great, and I have all my spot microphones where I need them, and then I can just put them in without reverb, without delay, anything. It just then the mix is very clear usually very strong and it just pops when you know like my my the, the, the holes where i have to hang my main microphone they're a little bit off and i have to pull it around and and it's not in an ideal like they're not in an ideal way they're a little bit too far so i will need a lot of spot microphones but i don't want it to sound so spotty then there might be the moment when you have to introduce a little bit of a delay so that it that you can make them louder and they don't appear so forward but what that does over 60 microphones and over well what am i delaying them to to the right microphone or to the left microphone or what you will kind of mud up your own mix if you do mm-hmm. the delay thing because all of a sudden you have introduced 30 delays into your mix which is not a good thing so if everything is part if everything is set up right you will have a really clear mix yeah and and then the, the question is do i need extra reverb on some spot microphones because i just have to make them too loud to not jump in your face then that that is basically that then the reverb is kind of your saving grace mm-hmm. um i would usually try to 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 avoid that if if I know the hall and if I can get where I need to get, I love it. I love to do it without without delays. Yeah. Then when you go, let's just do a little surround thing. Uh, so basically, what you want to do is in in um, stereo, you have maybe the room. Maybe you want to enlarge it a little bit. You have your main microphones, and then you see what you do with the spot microphones, whether they need reverb or not. Hopefully not. Hopefully no de- delay. Hopefully no reverb. In surround, it's kind of it, we kind of thought it's it's different. If you need 
any reverb at all that should go on the main microphones. And with the spot microphones, you really just bring in the clarity if you need that at all. So there's usually never any reverb on any uh, spot microphones in, in surround or immersive because you have such a big main microphone. If you start um, muddying that up with a reverb, uh, you're really in trouble. So yeah. um, interesting. Yeah. So so it, 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 it works. It works a little bit different. And then again, in film, things flip around because you need so much of your spot microphones. You will definitely have reverb on the spot microphones to to give them to give them some some gravity. And then you have to balance that with what your overall decatry might tell you. Mm-hmm. That usually is for impact. For, for making again giving you the room signature i think mm-hmm. we we did um the soundtrack for judas and the black messiah at the um at manhattan center at the at the uh what's that ballroom called the it's not the, is it the suntime ballroom no it's the um bernstein no um well at the, at the big you know that big ball that big famous ballroom whatever the big one is yeah <laughs> and 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 they had the crane for the Decker tree and we had the outriggers. And so we just had, when it got really loud, then you really heard the, the size and the magnitude of the room through that Decker tree. And that, that really gave it its impact. So, yeah, but, but, but then you have so many spots on stage and you really need them because you have that so close and you have to have it so close. So that it's, again, it's the film always turns it a little bit on its head. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I guess it makes sense that like, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're taking this ambience first approach to recording to begin with. So, you know, by just focusing on getting the main room mics in the right position so that, you know, they're, you're not capturing, you're capturing a good balance of like close versus like the actual ambience. Mm. Um, that's going to give you that foundation. So you don't necessarily need to be relying on reverbs after the fact. Do you ever find yourself like every room's obviously going to sound different. And obviously these places are built really really well they're not just kind of thrown together like you know they're built with intention so the rooms themselves sound good but do you ever have to find yourself like eqing tones out of rooms and that kind of thing just to get a cleaner cleaner sound or is it pretty much just like you don't need to mess around with the eq too much there you shouldn't i mean yeah it's it's very rare that i've ever used an eq in a classical recording actually um that's very interesting no usually usually no i mean if it's a loud room then you might have to get some, um, you know, some uh, low cuts in the spot mics uh, if you know that there's going to be some some low low frequency rumble or something. But usually, what you try to do is like omni microphones hanging over everything and getting really the whole frequency spectrum. And then you kind of have to, you should be at least in the good halls uh, able to not EQ them and just leave it. Work, yeah, really work work with the positioning. Yeah, it's always work with the positioning, and and here's here's my famous my famous story. Um, I mean, I think when I was studying, I thought, oh, the world really doesn't need another Beethoven symphony cycle because everybody's done it. Why would why would you do one? Said she in the university, <laughs> and then and then at Bavarian Radio, the uh, chief conductor Marius Janssen said, "I want to record a Beethoven cycle," and people were like, "Of course, uh, where can we start?" And so we we uh, we actually recorded over two years in our uh, in our hall at the Hercules in München, which is like a, a shoebox type of thing, which I find very easy to record in because somehow everybody knows the sound of a shoebox hall and everybody finds it very comforting. So that's not much. If it's if it's a good shoebox, it's very easy to record. So we recorded everything, but he said, 
I want to have a Beethoven cycle that is sounding modern, so no shoebox. We are flying to Tokyo, to Suntory Hall, and record the whole Beethoven cycle there. Hmm. And I mean, you, you, it's like if you, if you really want to uh, make Germans or Europeans very, very mad, is you tell them that their, their halls are not good enough. <laughs> yeah, that you have to fly like 90 piece orchestra over to, to, to Tokyo, soloists and the whole choir, because <laughs> we want the sound of that hall. And so we flew to Tokyo. Uh, we recorded the whole Beethoven cycle again in four days in Tokyo in Suntory Hall. And um, and when I did my first mix, um, we thought we had actually something really nice, and we thought it was quite good. And, and then I was called to the to the conductor. And, and I mean, you have to imagine. So the producer is like mid sixties, very old, very conservative German guy, and then a beginning 70s Russian conductor. I was uh, beginning 30s. So, and I looked like 15 or something. And uh, <laughs> so they they brought me in and were playing this for him. And, and I thought, okay, I mean, either I'll go under the door and that's it, or or he'll like it. And and he, he heard the whole thing and then he turned around and was like, did you mix this? Yes. Oh, good. I want you to go to Tokyo and do the other one too, the surround board <laughs> version. Okay. And the only thing he wanted was he wanted to hear more Suntory Hall. So we actually exchanged a little bit of Artificial Hall with more room mics uh, from Suntory Hall because he really wanted to have that very specific signature sound in there. Interesting. He really knew what he wanted. That's very that's very cool. I love that. And I, and I think that... It's it's interesting to hear you say that, like, you know, you, you shouldn't have to use EQ on these recordings because, you know, most of the people listening to this are so reliant on EQ to fix their recordings. And it really does drive home that point of like when you spend the time to actually position your mics carefully and you're very like methodical about that process, then you you ideally capture the sound right at the source and you don't really need to mess with it. It's maybe just some level adjustments at that point. But, yeah. uh, you know, for the most part, the work is done for you. So um, I think that that's very interesting and very cool, especially when you're dealing with projects of that magnitude where you've got so many musicians, like most people would be grabbing, like people who, who are inexperienced in this would be grabbing EQs all over the place trying to clean things up. So it's uh, it's very fascinating yeah. to hear you talk about that. and, and uh, No EQs and compressors and none of that. Really, none of that. I mean, you will have a limiter because if, if you do broadcast, I mean, there's a broadcast chain. I mean, you have to have the security that if somebody says, okay, today is my fortissimo day and I'm going to hit it really hard. Well, <laughs> yes, you have to have the broadcast limiter. But that's usually the only thing we used. And the rest was microphones, positioning, leveling, microphones, positioning, leveling. And I, I have a really great example for you from, from jazz. No, actually, from two two of them. Um, that, that might be recordings that Jim maybe talked about. We um, went to Chicago to do a Patricia Barber recording in 2019. And, I mean, he has done, I think, all of her albums. So he kind of knows what he wants to do, where he wants to do it. So he had nine, we had nine microphones on the piano, four on the bass. She had her singing. Of course, she had her VM1 to sing in. The VM1 was most of the times in Omni. 
while she was also playing piano. I mean, that, that hmm. was, I thought that was risky, but it, she sounded so much better in that. So we kind of thought, okay, we'll just mix it away. That's an odd, odd choice, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But, but she sounded great. I mean, she sounds great on that microphone and okay, let's do that. And there is not a single EQ in this whole recording and it's jazz. And it's really just the microphones and where they were. And, and I mean, he's, of course, very, very careful in because he has known that. And for jazz, I also see that, you know, certain people, like Patricia singing in a VM1, you don't need an EQ. You just, you didn't need anything. In the old days, actually, you needed a DS or because the S was very sharp. But then we went to 352. And the best part is her S goes up to about 130K. And if, if it's undistorted, if you just let it go, the yes is not sharp. We don't hear it. Maybe dogs die, but we, we don't hear it. And <laughs> it's fine. And when you actually, in, in, in hindsight, so once you do the step down to a CD level, but the signal was never distorted, it doesn't come off as sharp. So you don't need the deesser. That, mm. that was actually the thing we learned when we went into Ultra HD is that a lot of things you don't really have to care about because you never get into this um, the system distorting. Interesting. That's the first I've ever heard that. So, so you're saying that like when you're recording at like 352k, it's 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 like the positioning of the frequencies itself kind of moves, like or no, it doesn't. Move. It does move. Uh, it's just our S, which if you do 44.1, it cuts off at 22k, and obviously the S is still so strong at 22k that even if the meters don't show you it's distorting, the system itself is distorting. But if you just let it go and then filter it out with, you know, with, um, you know, with appetizing or, or later with, with a mathematical filter, not with a real time filter, but, but later when you have all the time in the world to, to choose how you want to get from your 352 to 441, then it doesn't distort because mm. it never distorted the system. Gotcha. Yeah, because there's only so much bandwidth that the system has when it's at a smaller sample rate. So, yeah. So, gotcha. so the the idea of actually going to twenty four bit and going into this ultra HD, and with uh, with the saxophone, I went even higher. I went to three eighty four, and again, that's almost a whole CD, you know, sampling frequency better than three fifty two. It it just gave it, and 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 it's again, it's not as, as if I heard anywhere close to three hundred anything. Of course, I don't. Yeah, but. The, the idea that you have eight times more samples and with the 24-bit or 32-bit, you have that much more resolution. And then you can sculpt the sound later if you need to so much better. And we found ourselves not needing, for this Patricia Barber recording, not needing a deesser, not needing any compressors, not needing any cues. It was really just Jim mixing levels. Hmm. And, That's very and interesting. that was it. So and and that's because we kind of come from a little bit of the same the, the same school and and that I mean I my whole work uh, in classical is you, you don't if you shouldn't use you shouldn't use EQs because it'll color the sound compared to whatever else you have coming in and uh, and he he's I mean he his class was also in in, in um, public radio and and he's actually a French horn player so he kind of comes from a similar but a little bit different mm -hmm. background. And it's always our our uh, biggest fun is how can we do this without needing all of this? So that's why usually when we go out, first we clean up the power. 
So we, we, even if we go to a studio, we kind of we clean up the power so the noise noise floor drops. Then usually I bring and then, in my. And speaking of that, yes. how do you go about doing that? And it's like when you say cleaning up the power, what kind of things are you doing there? Um, we work with a company called Essential Essential Sound Products (ESP). Mm-hmm. And uh, so this this guy Michael Griffin uh, actually used to do fuel injection at GM, and he kind of thought, okay, I'm doing this with fuel. Power should be the same thing. So he kind of filters. He does power cords and power distributors. So he filters basically the power coming out of your out of your outlet, and filters out the whole the, the, the whole crap and. Uh, then accelerates it so that the that your unit that you're putting it into kind of gets all the power it needs. It, and, and and usually you, you can really see LEDs light up brighter and, and you just hear, depending on what cord you use, it really filters and it shapes and a little bit it accuses the sound, depending on what, what type of cord you use. And for the Patricia Bauer recording, he came down from Detroit and brought, I don't know, I think about 40... 40 power cables and a couple of distributors. And we ended up, we had always had a couple of them, but I think around the house, I would say we have now about five or six of his distributors. Like everything that is in my mastering system, everything that is down in our mixing system is cut, is going through these um, distributors and power cords. Interesting. And that really lowered the noise floor immensely. Even in a, like in, a, in a normal house, we do have our special leg for, uh, for audio, but even, even in a normal home, you can, you can get very, very sophisticated with your power. That's so fascinating. I've never heard of another engineer like going to that degree of like bringing in like filtering systems. But again, it goes to show the detail that you guys put in. And I, I'm very fascinated because I so I just recently moved to this new room and uh, the power in here is horrible. And, I, and I, I constantly find all sorts of hums and buzzes and stuff like that. And I'm like on this mad hunt to try to fix that. So I'm, I might have to get in contact with your with your person there and just send uh, get get one of their yeah. systems. <laughs> But no, not. it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, I have a I have a colleague in the in the classical uh, world who is actually he is extreme on a level that that I say I with whom I have worked I I couldn't do that with those people because he but he he runs his label that way and he just does it uh, it's high, it's uh, my way or the highway and um, so he has his main microphone set up. And he places people around the setup. So, and he tells them, come in a, come in a step, go out a step. And then they make their microphone or the, basically the, the, the spider is sitting in the middle. And then you place people and, and everybody around it. And he doesn't, he refuses to use, um, spot microphones. <laughs> just, it is that he, I mean, he is that extreme and his, his recordings sound amazing. I sometimes feel that the musicians don't have their best performance because they might not hear the person they should hear very well because it's he's kind of on the other side of, of the thing for sonic reasons. But they, I mean, the, the recordings sound absolutely amazing. And the the other thing he does is he even he has the church or wherever he is turn off all power circuits that are not needed. Then he cleans up his power, and he even goes so far that he doesn't use any of the lights in the church. He has his own lights that don't emit anything. That's insane. So, I mean, 
that that is it is kind of insane, but it really it is yeah, I mean, it is yeah. sonic <laughs> the, the sonic uh, results are stunning and immersive. They are absolutely stunning. But again, you couldn't tell that. I mean, they tried to tell that this Russian conductor or tried to tell yeah. I'm just, <laughs> staying here now. It, it, it just that doesn't work. But but I think the the amount. I mean, it's like really the amount of detail uh, really shows. It, it, it does. Uh, I love that. I, you know, it all comes down to like this pursuit of clarity. And there are all sorts of little details that can really go a long way as far as getting that clarity that you need. And, you know, in in like the rock music world, it's like something as little as a guitar pick that you use could, can make a big difference in the guitar tone. So many people don't even give their pick a second thought. Like, you know, they just they use what they use and that's it. But you know, if you actually spend some time and you get the right pick, you'll get the right sound or you'll get a better sound. But like then to take it to this extra level of like adjusting the power is to me, that is is it's such a, a, a cool detail that I think most people have never even considered. Oh, by the way, we did that with um, John Schofield. So John Schofield came in with the amp that he always uses or the power cord he always uses and it has a sum. And I uh, like a, a recording before that, Jim had brought it to me for editing and I said you know this editing this hum this is really it's kind of getting on my nerves can we do something about it so next time they had a recording um, I thought there's one more of these power cables I'll just exchange <laughs> the power cable hum was gone and then it, the, the, also the DM sounded better than I thought and I, obviously Schofield went to Jim and said um, what, what what did you use? It, uh, the amp sounds really great, and he said, "Well, I exchanged the power cord, and um, <laughs> it it I had a lot less trouble because yeah, I didn't have to do anything. It was just like, yep, that's that's what I wanted, and uh, so it, it makes it makes a, it makes a huge difference." Yeah. That's uh yeah, it's blowing my mind that you guys do that, and I and but I think that that again just shows the detail that you guys put into your work, and it almost sounds like. You guys are this like full package deal. Like when you're working on a project, you're getting, you know, your your approach, like everything that like your formula. It's getting the right right power, right mics, all those elements that go into it. Um, and uh, I love that. It's not just like a hey, yeah, we'll show up and kind of work with what you've got. It's like no, we we know how to get the sound we want. We're gonna do it. And uh, I think that that's very very cool. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about, I know you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, you guys do a lot of work with immersive audio. And obviously immersive is becoming bigger and bigger these days, especially with Atmos and that kind of thing. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on your experience in the immersive world and where you think the future of it's going. Because there's always like, especially right now, I feel like with Atmos becoming more popular, there's a lot of people that are debating like is this something worth investing into is this something that's just like a fad that kind of thing so i'd love to get your opinions on that as well well i mean i've been working in uh, surround and immersive for uh 20 years now so so to me and in broadcast that is actually uh nothing new so it's like um where i come from like every uh, our our uh, friday evening like the symphony concert was always broadcast from 2003 on in uh, stereo and surround and we actually, because we said we don't want to do a surround mix that is then uh, folded down to stereo, because I mean, ninety-eight percent of people will hear stereo. So if there has to be a real stereo mix, there has to be a real surround mix. But nobody will pay for two teams. So we actually had um, mix, we had boards where we would do where we could actually get two mixes at the same time. 
So we had a setup, every, every one of us had a setup where you had the um, spot microphones in some kind of um, relationship for stereo and in a different for surround. Mm. So you kind of figure out at some point what your formula is and how, how you can do that and switch back and forth between the two mixes during the, during the um, broadcast so that, you know, I'm not really doing something very crazy. It's not going off the rails. So that was kind of how my journey into immersive started. And, and um, knowing that I hadn't learned a lot of uh, about it in uh, at university, I knew again through AES that uh, the Japanese and NHK were already experimenting with uh, something called 22.2, which was already 3D sound, which had like a lot of bottom layer, mid layer, and the top layer and the voice of God. And in 2006, uh, I was actually sent to Japan for a couple of months to learn this. And so I, I spent a lot of time at uh, NHK uh, Research and Development and also at the um, at the broadcast center to really see the, the, the practical application of how it was done. So I loved this and it, I loved the 22.2. I mean, from 2006 on, because they had video in 8K that, at, you know, in 2006. So this is how far we are behind. Wow. And um, and they, that was all done. They, they wanted to premiere this at the Olympics in 2020. That was when that actually went online for, this is how Japan now broadcasts. Like the big show is on 22.2. This is really cool. <laughs> and, and they also had like these binaural fold downs a lot, a lot earlier and they're a lot better than what we have at the moment. So for me, that was, I, I kind of grew up with this. And in 2010, my first full 3D uh, recording was this oratory with, with Simon Rattle and, you know, I don't know, a hundred something people on stage. And, and I couldn't even mix this in Germany. I had to fly to Tokyo to mix it. Because there was no facility, and like we certainly didn't have one. <laughs> and since I was supposed to present this at an AES spatial conference, they actually flew me to Tokyo early. I mixed it there. I presented it, and and there were some things that I I didn't know, I hadn't planned on, but that just came out great. For one thing was so there was the orchestra, then soloists, and the choir, and my uh, my, my immersive microphones were kind of over the choir, like pointing to diffuse sound, but they were still kind of over the choir. And what happened was in, in the playback, the, the choir just started floating. Like the, the kind of the solos were between, you know, center and, and, and up, and, and the choir just floated in the air, which was exactly what it was, what it sounded like, what it was supposed to do due to the, the score. And, and it just had this enormous effect. And of course, from that second on, or basically from 2006, I was hooked. And from 2010, I was really like, okay, this is this this is it. But there was no way to distribute it, except in like these test settings for NHK. And I would say, really, since two years, or really since last year, it has really because Dolby couldn't really commit to it um, before, let's say, 2019. Uh, there was only Dolby for for film. But in 2019, we were asked to go to Capitol Studios and uh, remix um, some of, uh, of the surround Grammys, uh, like the early Americans. And uh, we had done a piano recording in Havana that was, that was immersive. And 
we were supposed to remix them and have them turned into Dolby Atmos. And then we were flown to the high-end Munich for, by PMC to present this. So that was the first time I've seen uh, a Dolby Atmos music setup really at a show. And nobody and people were still like, this is never going to hit. Nah, nothing is going to happen. But when Apple came out with these headphones and when actually Apple, although I really don't like that binaural drone mix yet, but it's become so good that it's almost believable. When Apple started streaming, and especially when Tidal started streaming because they don't process their own thing on top of it, um, it became kind of mainstream because everybody can access it. You don't have to have 20 speakers. You Actually, if you, if you have those uh, headphones or if you even have the AirPods, you get a really, you get a kind of a good, a good realistic uh, idea of what it is. And if you can even combine it with video, which is possible now, which is easy with, with Dolby Atmos 2 HD or even the normal, the MP4 Dolby Atmos and the head tracking, then you can actually even look at your guitar. You can look at things. And, I, and, and normal people who never had any inkling of what is immersive all of a sudden can experience it and start liking it. So I've, I feel and, and I have noticed um, for, the, for the clients that we work with, that sales do go up at least 20% if you can get into these more expensive categories on streaming, which immersive is, if you have an uh, immersive mix on top of your um, stereo mix. I have noticed that our Tidal and our Apple um, revenues have significantly actually gone up. So if you manage to get a good one, uh, I think it can actually have, uh, it can have impact. That's very fascinating. Yeah, I like I like hearing those kind of stats because, you know, obviously there's the um, there's the enjoyment factor of listening to something in a new, you know, listening environment. Um, but uh, it's interesting to hear more about like the the profitability and, you know, that's that side of it. It's the only thing it's the only thing that'll that'll make or break it in the end. This is because it to make an immersive mix is 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 a big financial. I mean, it's a big financial investment especially if you work with smaller artists i mean there at the moment i see two trends i mean there are the people like let's say like us uh, who who really think immersively and who record i mean who have microphones that will give you whatever your immersive experience is and uh really do an immersive mix then very often the big pop acts or what i've heard is they kind of go to a mastering house, then they deliver some stereo stems and say, turn this into immersive, but don't make it too different from the stereo, which then, of course, is kind of, yeah, well, it's kind of this semi, it's more an up mix, really. It's not, it's not really immersive, but people start getting the difference. And it's, um, I mean, we, we were actually in contact with a very, very big act where the, uh, engineer, the stereo engineer, actually said he wanted to have the immersive done right and he wanted us to do the immersive. And the management uh, in the end said, no, nah, we we're not going to pay this. I mean, we know we get that many more streams and we, wanna, we want to invest two or $3,000 and not more and that's it. Hmm. So that, that unfortunately, they didn't get it. But I know that, for example, Harry Styles and what was that... Uh, there are a couple who actually really do immersive, immersive mixes, and they come out sometimes really well. Um, so 
there there is i think there is there is hope and as soon as basically or if it's possible to reduce all the immersive formats that are kind of floating around now to one where everybody agrees on what it is then i actually see a future and at the moment it it appears to be dolby i, I think again there are better formats out there but you know what um you take what it is because i mean i i heard once i heard uh, one of our immersive things played back on a very very cheap system that was really kind of thrown up and i think a couple of hundred dollar speakers and i i thought you know what it i can recognize it and it's it is actually giving me the idea that what we wanted to produce and in the headphones, I get the same thing. And uh, two weeks ago, we were sent this Sonos box. You know, that in, in, in the end or in the beginning, it was this awful Amazon Echo thing where you thought, okay, you can just <laughs> kick that into the trash and that'll be too good for it. But now there's the Sonos box where you just have a QR code, you take your phone and uh, it, it wants you to tell uh, to tell it what what kind of surfaces you have on the walls. Uh, it'll do its own alignment. Wow! And I think it's it like for one box that does immersive that shoots it at all the. It is amazing. It it's absolutely fascinating. Hmm. I mean, I would mix on it, but when I hear my mixes on it, I'm like, you know what? This is this is very impressive, and it is easy enough for everybody to set up. Yeah. So I think we are trending in, in, in a direction where this is not crazy. You don't need 20 speakers. You, you know, this Sonos thing, utterly impressive. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. We're kind of just waiting for the manufacturers at this point to, to get the cost down and start mass producing these things so that it is, it is a little bit more affordable for both the consumers and for the people making this stuff. And then, you know, I, I agree with that. I think, I think once that, once that becomes a thing and people can really afford it and embrace it, we'll, I think we'll enjoy it a lot more. I mean, I think, so this Sonos box, if you had to buy it, it's about $500. And you can say this is expensive. I mean, it's like a, yeah. a pair of whatever speakers is very, very easily uh, 500. And I mean, when, when, when we travel to these audiophile um, shows where a meter of loudspeaker cable for $4,000 is not even <laughs> frowned upon, you know, then I'm kind of like, well, you it's true. <laughs> yeah, think you know, about that? I think you're going to start to see Apple just like when you buy a phone, you're going to get these AirPods that are completely immersive. And, and that's going to be one way that people start embracing it a little bit more. And you're starting to hear about Apple. Um, they have their plans to make it so that to get on certain playlists, you need to have immersive audio and all that stuff. So, so yeah, I think we're starting to see that trend now that immersive is becoming more mainstream in the music world. Um, not just for broadcast, so it, it's interesting. I mean, I think it it uh, it definitely, if it's done well, it definitely adds to the emotional impact of what you're doing. It's, um, I mean, there, there's always need for stereo because with the you know with the resurgence of vinyl, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you will always <laughs> have to have a good stereo mix, and and most people, I think, will still always go for stereo. But it's, I think it's, it's a serious option. It's, it's a serious option for, for, you know, if you want to have a little bit of a, a bigger experience. And uh, I think we, I actually, we walked with, with this iPad that I'm doing this podcast on. We walked onto like an, an Alpine, you know, Alpine cottage and, and I had my 
headphones with me and I put them on, on, on a friend of ours and because she had no idea what immersive was and we're like, hey, here, there you go. And it also had a video with it. So she kind of started doing this and all of a sudden she put it on her <laughs> husband. And they, so we, within, within 10 minutes, we had now 30 people like all into, I have to get these, I have to get these Apple AirPods. This is really good. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, it's kind of, it's at, 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 at the moment, it's a little bit of a mission still that you have to do. But people, uh, I think if, if you give them the right content, I think they will like it. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I agree with that. I, and I think that that tends to be the consensus between a lot of people who are doing this kind of thing. It's just, we're just waiting for more people to to hear it and to experience it. And then that'll that'll help to sell the, the platform. So um, yeah, that's very cool. Well, I think that that's probably a good spot to start to wrap things up. If uh, if people want to learn more about you and listen to some of your productions, what's the best way, what's, what's the best place for them to do that? Well, we uh, our website is andersonaudiony.com. And we have, um, we actually have uh, a site with our latest productions. We have uh, all the archival productions. You just have to click on them and it'll get you either to Amazon or to a streaming service or to a, uh, a site where you can choose which format you would like to listen to our, our stuff. So um, that is the, the, be- the best resource, I would say. Um, awesome. Otherwise... Yeah, I think if, if you Google us at this point, there's a, a lot of press about a lot of certain projects uh, online. Very cool. Awesome. Well, well, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was great to get some insight as to your approach to recording these classical productions. And and uh, I think it's just, I, I think it's really refreshing to hear about recording things from this like ambience first perspective and, you know, the idea of like not needing compression and EQ and stuff like that. I, I think that's a really refreshing approach and um, something that, you know, people should definitely be trying to do more of, even if it's not an orchestra, it's like, you know, you can always focus on getting it right at the source and, and not having to rely on extra tools to fix it up later. So um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you telling these stories and, and I think people are going to learn a lot from this. So, so thank you very much. You're very welcome. So that was my interview with Ulrika Schwartz, and I really enjoyed that. I thought that was very fascinating. I loved learning about her ambience first approach to recording, and I think that it makes a lot of sense. And I, I also really appreciate the fact that she pays attention to so many little details in the entire recording process to make sure that she gets the best sonic quality. Everything from the sample rates that she was using to even down to the power cables. That That is something that I've never heard anyone do before, and it makes complete sense that If you pay attention to those little details, you can clean up your sound even further. So I think it just really goes to show the professionalism that her and her husband put into their productions. And I hope that gave you some ideas as to things that you can try even in your home studio to get the quality of your recordings to sound even better. So yeah, I think there was a lot of really cool nuggets of information here to to use and to apply to your home studio and definitely make sure to give them a shot next time you go to record or mix a track. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you got a lot of great value out of it. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from your home studio. And if you're looking for advice on what to do, what process to find, follow, what to be listening for, how to dial in settings, what tools to use, all of that kind of stuff. There are a ton of great resources on the website, one of which that I want to direct you to is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I wrote a few years ago that really breaks down the mixing process step by step. And that, again, is available at MasterYourMix.com. 
And if you're the type of person who wants more one-on-one support and you would love to have someone that can listen to your mixes and offer you personalized feedback on which steps you need to take with your specific mixes, you know, whether that's knowing which settings to use with EQ or compression or volume or whatever else is needed to help make those mixes get elevated to that next level. If that seems like you and you're looking for help with your specific tracks, I would love to give you a hand. Simply just send me an email. My email address is info at masteryourmix.com and just simply include the word coaching in that email. And from there, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and the projects that you're working on to see how I can help you. And then from there, we can talk about what it would look like to work with each other and we can go from there. So if you're interested, in one-on-one coaching, send me an email, info at masteryourmix.com, and just include the word coaching in the subject line. All right, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next episode. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.